All right, Jeremiah chapter 19. Now, the goal tonight is very simple. Chapter 19 and chapter 20. I know that's a lot, but the goal this morning was to finish up the one thing in Sunday school, finish 19 in the morning worship, and finish 20 tonight. So since that didn't all play out the way I wanted it to, we're going to try to go through 19 through 20. I think we should be able to do so, I think, but we will see because we'll never know what we'll stumble upon and where it will lead. But let's go back to 19. We're going to do a quick review of where we went and where we ended up, all right? So in chapter 19, verse 1, we have now read this multiple times. Thus saith the Lord, go and get a potter's earthen bottle, take of the ancients of the people and of the ancients of the priest, and go forth unto the valley of the son of... Hinnom. All right. Now, once we got to Hinnom, whether it was a right decision, whether it was a wrong decision, it was the decision I made. I thought as soon as I saw Hinnom, I immediately know where it goes. So we took, we, this is where we started. We started with the Valley of Hinnom and we ended with the Lake of Fire. All right. And it's a long road to get from the Valley of Hinnom to the Lake of Fire, but we had to do so because we all know that Hinnom, once you move over to the New Testament, in Greek, it becomes Gehenna, right? Or Gehenna, however you want to pronounce it, okay? And we know that that then is translated in English as the word hell. Okay, so what happens? Well, the Valley of Hinnom is a real, tangible, literal place, right? Where they sacrificed children, right? And to desecrate it, it was basically turned into a garbage dump, right? And that's where they dumped fire and they burned that fire, Well, when you put garbage in the fire, it burns up. All right, well, we know in the New Testament, the Valley of Hinnom then becomes symbolic, a living illustration of hell. Well, some will say, well, since it's based off a garbage dump, well, then they bring in the doctrine of annihilationism, saying people will go there and just burn up and cease to exist. So then we took this whole concept and we followed it. So we looked at all the verses where Gehenna, 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 however however you want to say it, how it's used, right? We looked at all of those verses. It's used how many times in the King James? Twelve times. And what did we discover out of those twelve times? So we were left with a lot of information, right? We, We were like, well, it doesn't really tell us How long? We know it's really bad, right? It's better to pluck out your eye or cut off your hand than go there. But then it talks about being destroyed there, which then kind of supports the view of annihilationism. And like, oh, man, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? We had some other verses that kind of connected maybe to outer darkness or weeping and gnashing of teeth, but where the worm never dies, but you still don't get, you you have to impose a lot of ideas because what typically happens If someone tells you, this is what hell is like, then they just go grab a verse and then they just kind of read what they just told you into the verse. And and, and a lot of times you'll go, well, see, it's right there. And you're like, well, no, not if you stop and think about it. The verse really doesn't say what they just said that it says. So we were like, okay, where do we get some more information? So we went through all 12 uses and we didn't get a lot. We thought we had a little bit and we thought we could... We could kind of support the idea, but we could not be dogmatic. So then we're like, well, then what do we do? So we expanded our search, right? We expanded our search. And that led us to Luke 
16. Luke 16, though, all of a sudden, Guiana is not there. What is it? Hades or Hades, right? And we, we, that's, the, that's the story of the rich man and Lazarus, okay? Now, the Lazarus ends up in what, what they recall as Abraham's bosom, and the rich man ends up in Hades. Now, to be fair, this morning, because in the second hour I was moving so fast, I was going so fast trying to cover it all, I inadvertently referred to Abraham's bosom as hate, like I, I connected them, all right? So I apologize for anyone who heard it online. I, I didn't even think about it till this afternoon. I'm like, why, why was I doing that? But I was trying to move so fast, trying to, I was trying to separate them and trying to make sure that we weren't, and I ended up inadvertently connecting the two. So if I did that, I clearly know there's a difference between Hades and Abraham's bosom. I think, I think the totality of the teaching would have indicated that, but, but I do apologize for that. So, so then this, all, this confuses so much, right? Because now, okay, we, we started at the Valley of Hanam, and now we're, we, we, Gehenna, and then we ended up in Hades, right? Okay, now, we, we think there's a fair argument to connect Hades and the Greek word Gehenna together, right? Because now that's, we think it's the same place, and it's sometimes translated as hell, right? The only problem is it's not always the same place. Sometimes it's the same place. Sometimes it's not the same place. Because sometimes Hades is only referring to the grave and not referring to a place of punishment. Well, then that complicates things, right? So now we have, so here's what we have. We have the Valley of Hanam. Got it? Turns into a garbage dump. Then that turns into this place of some kind of punishment, right? We'll refer to it as hell, right? since I keep saying the Greek word incorrectly, right? We refer to it as hell. Then we add additional Greek word for Hades. But then Hades, we realize, wait a minute, Hades doesn't always refer to, quote-unquote, hell or a place of punishment. It refers just to the grave. All right, now, that already adds a lot of distinctions. Then we throw in the mix. What else now do we have? Abraham's bosom. Now, the whole weird thing about Abraham's bosom is that the entire text... One, why is it called Abraham's bosom? And the entire text, who's running the narrative? Abraham. Not only that, the person in Hades, right, is talking to Abraham, asking Abraham for mercy, which makes no sense. So the whole story is convoluted, and that's why many throughout most of church history has said it's a parable. And don't be taking your understanding of hell, Hades, or the eternal state from Luke 16, or you're going to get really, really, really convoluted and it's going to get complicated, right? Because you're going to put Abraham in charge of the place, right? Which nobody wants, right? So what we have concluded is that Luke 16's primary purpose was it was to the Jews, right? That's why Abraham is mentioned. And what are they trying to convince the Jews of? You didn't listen to anybody in the Old Testament, and you wouldn't listen even if... Someone was to die, raised from the dead, and you wouldn't listen. So we kind of we set Luke 16 aside as really teaching anything about the eternal state. Now, the minute I say that, everyone loses their mind. But I'm sorry, you try to make it work, and you're going to come up with a convoluted mess. You're, you're, I mean, that's a, you, you got Abraham in charge of it? Like it makes sense. So some, guess what some people do? This is what they do. You've got the Valley of Hinnom. So far, so good. You've got hell. 
You've got, and hell can, it can hell, or you can refer to it as Hades, as a place of, of punishment. You've got Hades as simply being the grave, and you have Abraham's bosom, which is different from heaven. Right? So then they separate it out even more, okay? And then, so Abraham's bosom is where people go now. Well, then wait a minute. The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be, okay, well, then how do you, well, why is Abraham in charge of the place? And the whole, the whole thing becomes more convoluted. So then we go through all of that. Then we end up all the way. When we, when we follow it, follow it, follow it, we finally get to Revelation. We're like, we're going to have it all fixed. And then what are we introduced now? A new place. The lake of fire. All right? Now, things get more complicated because now we have sea. We have death. Okay? We have Hades. But we know that all of it is thrown into the lake of fire. Now, the problem is, some people say sea is not actual sea, that it's symbolic, that death isn't really death, it's symbolic of whatever, and that Hades is really here the grave, but the lake of fire is actually real. Well, you know, that is maddening, because that doesn't work, because how can you have, how can you have literal and symbolic in one verse? Right? Here's what we do know. When it's all said and done, if we say the lake of fire is real, the rest of that stuff we may never figure out. Because you could, everyone has their theories, but the theories, well, almost every case, what happens with the theory? They can't follow it all the way through because all of a sudden, well, wait a minute, that can't be literal. Okay, well, that's literal. Well, that's not. No, it doesn't work. Here's what we know. If we can maintain that the lake of fire is literal, then what do we have to know when it's all said and done? There's a place of eternal punishment called the lake of fire. And no matter what what the other things are or not, they all end up where? In the lake of fire. And the lake of fire, it's much, much more explicit in Revelation that the lake of fire is what? A horrible, everlasting. That's the best, right? Because now we don't even have to try to go back and prove whether Hades or hell is everlasting. All we have to prove is that the lake of fire is. Because if we can prove the lake of fire is, then we don't need to even worry in the other debates. Does that make sense? So I think, I think we got there. It was, a, it was a long, winding road. But that's where we are. And just make sure you know. You, I mean, you can argue all day. You can argue from now till Jesus comes about what to do with those things in Revelation. But I will show you in church history, nobody agrees. Nobody. And if nobody agrees, you've got to be very careful being dogmatic, right? Because you've got the sea. You've got death. You've got hell. And then, then in the next verse, you only have death and hell. The sea somehow magically disappears. And then, but then in the next verse, you have everyone being thrown into the lake of fire. So death and hell can't necessarily relate to the people because you got the people in 15, the whole thing. And so everyone had a, everyone had a good hermeneutical argument for their perspective, right? Some people based it on the, on the verses before. Some people based it on verse 15. And, and even we had comments coming in where, well, C represents this and death rep, and every, everyone had, a, had an argument, but it was a convoluted mess. So where did we end it up with? Everything is in the lake of fire. That's, that's the one thing we can know. All right? So it took a long and winding road to get there. All right? Now, someone after, after uh, said, so then what happens when we die now? 
Well, obviously, it's Hades and hell that we believe is the same place. So, well, the grave, okay. Not, not referring to the grave. There is some place that people go to who are not saved. For a Christian, I'm just going to say the, we're with God because to be absent from the body, present of the Lord. And you can make all, and everyone wants to, I've seen some of the charts people have. You got this place, and you got this place, and you got this place. The Catholics at a new place, they've got purgatory. I mean, you can have, everyone's got all of their theories. But when it's all said and done, it's just a convoluted mess. So I like to make it simple. If you're lost, you're going to what? We'll, we'll, we'll combine the two locations and just refer to them as hell, right? Whether Hades or the other Greek word, right? We put them together. It's hell. That's what they are believers. What happens there, we can debate all day. But we know what's going to happen ultimately with it. Lake of fire. And we know what's going to happen there because it is explicit. It's explicit. And we don't have to debate, all right? So that's the best we can do. Now, go back to Jeremiah 19. Right, I just want to make sure that we have come as, as close as we can to, to put that all together. Now, whew, that's a lot just to try to review. Now, we go back to Jeremiah 19. We'll read verse 1 again. Thus saith the Lord, go and let a, uh, get a potter's earthen bottle. Take of the ancients of the people and of the ancients of the priest and go forth into the valley of the son of Hinnom. Now, we know from there, we end up in the lake of fire. We figured it all out, okay? Everybody's an expert now? All right. Which is by the entry of the east gate and proclaim there the words that I shall tell thee. So he's to go and, he, and, he's, and it's by the entry of the east gate. And there he's to speak. And what is he to say? Hear ye the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus say the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring evil upon this place, the which whosoever heareth his ears shall tingle. All right. How does the NIV translate the word tingle there in verse 3? Oh, tingle. They all say tingle. Okay. All right. Uh, this one, this one may offer. Um, everyone who hears it will shudder. All right. The bottom line is he's going to say something that the people are not, it's, it's going to cause some kind of emotional reaction, all right? Verse 4, because they have forsaken me and have estranged this place and have burned incense in it unto other gods, whom neither, whom neither they nor their fathers have known, nor the kings of Judah, and have filled this place with the blood of innocence, because they're doing child sacrifice, they're killing, you know, they're, they're offering to children, it's just crazy, they have built also the high places of Baal to turn their to burn their sons with fire for burnt offerings uh, unto Baal, which I commanded not, nor spake it, neither came it into my mind. All right, so they have completely forsaken God and they've turned to false worship, which included killing children. All right, verse six. Therefore, so once again we have this. Uh, action consequence kind of concept that's over and over and over in the book of Jeremiah. In fact, it can become almost weary and tiresome because it's the same message over and over and over, right? What's the message in almost every single chapter? Because you do this, judgment. Because you do this, judgment. And the solution offered over and over and over is law, which is never going to solve the problem. 
right? Then verse, uh, so verse six. Therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that this place shall no, shall no more be called Tophet, nor the, nor the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. And I will make void the council of Judah and Jerusalem in this place, and I will cause them to fall by the sword before their enemies and by the hands of them that seek their lives, and their carcasses will I give to be meat for the fowls of the heaven and for the beast of the earth. Simply put, what's going to happen? Judgment is coming, which includes more death, more death, more death, right? And I, and I will make this city desolate and, and hissing. Everyone that passeth thereby shall be astonished and hiss because of all the plagues thereof. How does the NIV translate hiss? Eight. Well, you shouldn't see the word hiss. There should be something different. Okay, appalled and scoff. Appalled and scoff. All right? Because they're, why are they going to be appalled? They're going to be appalled at how bad the destruction is and they're going to scoff because like, well, so much for you and your God kind of thing, right? Verse nine, and I will cause them to eat the flesh of their sons and the flesh of their daughters and they shall eat everyone the flesh of his friend in the siege and straightness wherewith their enemies and they that seek their lives shall straighten them. All right, what is that basically saying is going to happen? I'll read from one, I'll read from one uh, commentary. So severe would be the conditions of the siege that Judah's survivors would eat the flesh of their sons and daughters. The cannibalism is attested in the siege of Samaria uh, and in the Babylonian siege. According to Josephus, the wars of the Jews, this also happened in AD 70 when Jerusalem fell to the Romans. So three different times they experienced a siege upon their city and three different times they reverted to cannibalism. Now, what's disturbing about the passage is who is accredited for making this happen? God. I am going to cause them to eat the flesh of their sons and the flesh of their daughters. Now, once again, the philosophical problems in this book are, are legion. There's, and there's no way that you can try to water this down and, and dress it up and all the Christianese that we want to. The thing is forever haunting because there's, a, I mean, the, the whole situation is we, we're told in Jeremiah 31 that ultimately God's going to fix the problem, right? So if God's going to be the one that fixed the problem, then the, the issue always is, then what? Why didn't he fix it? Because, and then, the, and then no matter how far you go back, you, no matter how far you go back, it all starts with whom? God. There's no way to get God off the hook here. There's just no way because he's the one who created the whole thing knowing exactly what was happening. And if he's going to be the one who fixes it because they can't fix it, yeah, the whole thing is, is really difficult to process. All right, chapter 19, verse 10. Then shall thou break the bottle in the sight of the men that go with thee. So he's basically to come there, tell them, hey, basically, people are going to die. You're going to eat your own kids. You're going to revert to cannibalism. Then he's to take the bottle that he purchased and to do what? Smash it. Immediately, we know we have an object lesson going on, right? And shall say unto them, thus saith the Lord of hosts, even so will I break 
this people and this city as one breaketh a potter's vessel that cannot be made whole again and they shall bury them in Tophet till there be no place to bury. Now, 1911 is, is pretty frightening concept, right? Because it seems to imply what? Yeah, that there's going to be no way to ever fix them. I mean, what does what it specific, literally say there in the text? As one that cannot be made whole again. Verse 12, thus will I do unto this place, saith the Lord, and to the inhabitants thereof, and even make this city as Tophet. And the houses of Jerusalem and the houses of the kings of Judah shall be defiled as the place of Tophet because of all the houses upon whose roofs they have burned incense unto all the host of heavens and have poured out drink offerings unto other gods. That's a serious message, is it not? It's a serious message. It just shows how messed up the situation is, which brings us to 14 through 15. And what happens? Then came Jeremiah from Tophet, whether the Lord had sent him to prophesy. And he stood in the court of the Lord's house and said unto all the people, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring upon this city and upon all her towns all the evil that I have pronounced against it, because they have hardened their necks, but they would not hear my words. Now, we're right back to the problem that we have talked about over and over and over and over of how the people respond. And remember, it creates... It, it, look, there, there's, there's so many... There's reoccurring philosophical issues in Jeremiah that you can't get away, can't get away from, right? The reoccurring issues are over and over. When before God ever called Abraham or Abram, right? Before he ever even thought about forming the nation, he knew exactly what this people were going to do. Yes, he knew, right? And he, and he allows this to play out knowing how bad it's going to get. And over and over and over, it's led to what? Death and destruction, death and destruction, death and destruction, death and destruction, death and destruction. And so you have to be like, why, why? And especially the question of why becomes even more forceful because guess what? Every single time, the way it's typically preached in church is so maddening. How how is it typically preached in church? That first, we don't really focus on God knowing it's going to happen, right? There's usually not a big emphasis on God knowing it's going to happen, right? It's almost like, well, God wanted this to happen. I want this so bad, right? So the God of the universe wants something, but the people are, we don't want it, and so God can't do anything about it. And so the only solution for them not to have this happen, how is it always preached? What is the solution to all of their problems? For them to fix it and them to do what? Obey. So, for almost every church preaches the solution to their problem is law. Now, what is the only problem with that solution? It never worked one time. You know why it never worked? It can't work. Now, the minute you say it can't, everyone loses their mind. But if you think it can then all you need to show me is that you can keep God's law. And as soon as I tell someone to do that, what do they say? 
Well, I mean, I mean, nobody can do it perfectly. Well, then that can't be the solution, right? Because what does God's laws demand? Perfection. Perfection. We don't ever get there, and they never do. We've already seen in Jeremiah. He talks about how their fathers disobeyed. He talks about how they are disobeying, and we know they will continue to disobey, (laughs) okay, right? And when you look at the church, we can talk about how people in the past disobeyed and how the church in the present and how the church in the future. So whether it's Israel or whether it's the church, what is the continual perpetual state of both? Sin. Now, you're not allowed to say that. But it's just the reality. So, so that's, that's the ongoing philosophical problem. It's like, wait a minute. God knew this was going to happen. And there's just death, 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 death. He doesn't seem to do anything to fix the problem. And the only thing offered to fix the problem can't fix the problem, which is simply obey. Now, ultimately, we are told a solution is going to come. But when that solution comes, God is the one doing it all for them. And we know that solution has never come to play as of yet, right? Not not in the way for Israel as it seems to be directed at Israel later on in Jeremiah. So that philosophical problem is just, none of it makes sense. And then the big philosophical problem that everyone should struggle with is, while these people won't listen to Jeremiah, they constantly harden their heart. They constantly harden their heart. If you would have talked to them, they would have told you that they are listening. They would have told you that they're following God. They would have justified it because they had their own prophets. And they would have said that those prophets are the ones that are true prophets and Jeremiah was the false prophet. And then we come along in the American church and when we preach this, we're like, well, just don't listen to false prophets. Just, don't, just listen to the right teacher. Well, who's the right teacher? I can bring 10 sermons right now, just like I can grab them from the internet and play them. Which one's the right one? Now, you're going to tell me the right one is who? You're going to do what? Well, if you're honest, you're going to say what Bobby just said. But that's not how we say it because we're, we're, too, we're too Christian. We've got to use Christian language. So what are we going to say? The right one is the one. Come on. It's preaching God's word, right? That's what we're going to say. Now, if you take any of those teachers and ask them if they're preaching God's word, what are they going to say? And the people who agree with them will say they're preaching God's word. So they're going to say they're preaching God's word. The people who listen to them are going to say they're preaching God's word. Anyone who listens to me, I'm going to say I'm preaching God's word. And if you agree with me, you're going to tell me that I'm preaching God's word, but I'm only preaching God's word until you disagree, then I no longer am preaching God's word. Does anyone, now does that not just drive anyone to want to just leave church and go to the liquor store? Okay, well, it does me, okay, because it's like, what's the point? Like, the whole, the whole thing, like, what's the point? Like, just someone open up the Eskimo hut and let me drive through it because, because it drives me crazy. 
Because we, on one hand, because we're, we're so good at talking a big game, right? I'm only going to listen to those who preach God's word. I'm going to go to a church that teaches right doctrine. No, you're going to go to a church that teaches your doctrine. Because the minute they teach something that's not in aligned with your doctrine, you will do what? <laughs> it, it, it's, it, the whole thing is just, it's, 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 like, it's like a little kid's playing house. Nobody stops to ever go, wait a minute. I don't know if we're really playing house the right way. I don't know if we're really, you're just making, how you know, kids will just make up rules as they go along. Sometimes you're playing a game, they'll just change the rule in the middle, right? And you're like, what? That's not the way the game, no, this is the way we play the game. And you're like, no, that's, no, we're going to play, no. That, we do the same thing. So in some ways, you want to condemn these people, right? You're like, why won't they listen? What is wrong with them? What is wrong with them? But they would tell you, you know, what is wrong with you? We've got the priest. We've got the prophets. You got Jeremiah. Who's he? You're like, well, God, God called Jeremiah. You don't think the other prophets don't think God called them? Right? It would be maddening, would it not? Sadly, it's just as maddening. It's just as maddening today, right? Now, in the time and, and, and church history, they try to kind of resolve some of that solution, right? What was kind of uh, what was ultimately established to try to fix this problem? Come on, church history, y'all should know this. What was designed to try to fix this problem? Apostles, apostolic succession, which goes to the church. And so, therefore, who has the power to interpret? Not you. The church, they have the power. They have the authority because of apostolic succession and that the key is being given to the church. So your job is just to listen to the church. And how many churches then was there supposed to be? One. One church, one authority. You listen to the church. Problem solved. Now, whatever you want to say about that system, whatever you want to say about that system, we know that once, now we still don't know historically if it happened this way, but once a, a you know, German monk took a nail and a hammer and went boom, 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 boom to the castle door in Wittenberg, right? Now, we don't know if he actually posted it there. There's all kinds of debates over it. But if he did, whether he... Put it this way, whether he posted the 95 theses on the door or not, he published them. That is a fact. And once he published them, whether he intended to say this or not, what did he say? You're not the authority. And he claimed, now, he would not have said he was the authority. He would have claimed, this is the authority. And that sounds so spiritual, right? Oh man, that makes makes the any any talk about the Reformation. Everybody's like, "Amen, yeah, love this stuff, right? Fight that Roman Catholic Church, yeah, sounds good." So once he did that, once he said no to them, he didn't realize the dam just what, because that only took about how long? I don't know historically how long it took. In my mind, it took about five seconds. For someone to go, 
you're wrong, Luther. And then Luther's like, no, you're wrong. No, you're wrong. Oh, you think you're wrong? Oh, you want to talk to me that way? You should be killed. You should be drowned. Like he wanted to kill the Anabaptist. And they're like, no, you're wrong. And then, then everybody was like, no, the Anabaptists are wrong. And they're like, no, no, you're wrong. No, you're wrong. You're wrong. Calvin's weak. And then everyone started fighting everyone. And then after, from, you know, from the 1500s, here we are in 2023, is it anywhere close to better? No. And everyone's still, well, we're not, you're right. Okay, true. It is a little bit better in 2023. Okay, very true. We're not killing each other, right? Okay, that's good. We're not killing each other. So that's good. That's true, right? We just, nobody can agree. But we all stand behind pulpits and say, what we believe in this church is the word of God. And those over there are wrong. So when we read this, I want you to put it in our context. Because if you lived back then, you know what there's a high probability you'd have been doing? What do you think? What do you think you'd have been doing back then? No, right here, the Bible. Jeremiah 19. Jeremiah. And we would probably dismiss uh, Jeremiah. Right? I mean, did, who, are, who, who ordained the priesthood? God, okay? So you're going to listen to the priest or Jeremiah? Who's Jeremiah? He said, well, I would have known God called Jeremiah. Just stop it. You know, you give me a break. Because you would have been going with the preacher that had not one convert and didn't, you would have been like, I'm going to go to that church? There's no one there. Was anybody listening to, well, okay, maybe you guys would have gone. They're like, we're, we like churches that nobody goes to. So maybe you guys would have followed Jeremiah. But the majority would have been like, most of, most of people would like, nobody's listening to you, Jeremiah. <laughs> you're a loser. You're, you're, you're a failure. You would have walked around around. You would have went, went hissing. <laughs> you would have went, you'd have been like, whatever. Okay, who are you? Now, to see how this all plays out, now we have 25 minutes to take care of Jeremiah chapter 20, which should go relatively quick because there's only 18 verses. All right, here we go. Now, Pasher, the son of Emir, the priest, who was also chief governor in the house of the Lord, heard that Jeremiah prophesied these things. Now, who is this person? Pasher, the son of Emir, the priest, who was also chief governor in the house of the Lord, heard that Jeremiah prophesied these things. Just anyone, grab a Bible dictionary really quick and see if there's an entry for Pasher, the son of Emir. Yeah, Pasher, P-A-S-H-U-R. Just see if there's, there should be a pretty short entry if there's even, if there, if there is one. Okay, how long is it? Yeah. Okay, well, I don't want to read everything. Just find the one. Okay, we, we don't need all three. Can we find the, the entry for the one that is mentioned in Jeremiah chapter 20? 
the sum of Emir, right? Okay, that don't say any much more about him, right? Okay, that's okay. Here, so here's here's some information just so that you know who this gentleman is. You ready? Pasher was the chief governor or overseer of the temple of Jehovah. Now, just imagine you're living at this time. Here's the overseer for the actual temple, and here's Jeremiah. Does he have followers? He's nobody. And he's walking around telling everyone that everyone else is wrong. Now, come on. Our minds would, and, and we would say, there's just no way he's right. And, and how does this play out? What does Pasher do here, the son of Emir? The, um, uh, he hears, and then what? Look at verse 2. Then Pasher smote Jeremiah the prophet, put him in the stocks. There went the high gate of Benjamin, which was by the house of the Lord. Now, let me say it right here, and let me say it again, okay? I, I hate that I have to say this in 2023, but let me say this. We don't ever want to go back to a time in any way, shape, or form where people are punished and persecuted for their religious or theological beliefs. I don't care if it's the temple of Satan. I don't care what it is. The one thing we want in our country is the freedom of religion. Freedom of religion does not mean all religions are right. It just means everyone has the freedom. Because the minute you take away someone else's freedom, you're taking away yours at some point. Because all whoever's religion takes over, they always punish those who disagree. That's why we should reject Christian nationalism in any form. And that's one of the reasons. Like you could argue, well, why do we still have Baptist in our name? One of the reasons I still have Baptist in our name is historically, guess what is one of the foundational beliefs of a Baptist? The separation of church and state. Separate. Keep them separate. I don't want our country promoting Christianity in any way, shape, or form. Because if you establish Christianity in some kind of mixed up theocracy, guess what always happens when you merge church and state? You know this. You have studied church history enough. People die. You start killing people. And many Christians yell and scream for some Christian right to be in the public school, some Christian, right? And then when the Temple of Satan comes along, go, oh, you want your after-school Bible club? Well, we want an after-school Satan club. And then Christian parents lose their mind. How dare you lose your mind? You want the right, they have the right. You want prayer in the public school, then the Satanist can lead the prayer. The Muslim can lead the prayer. You know, no, this is a Christian country. No, we are not a Christian theocracy. And if you try to make it a Christian theocracy, at least for this pastor, I'm going to fight you all the way to the end because I don't want to live under your Christian theocracy because you'll most likely end up killing me because I won't agree with your doctrine. So when you read this, some people want to, I want to go back to the good old days. You know, I guess when we, you know, killed witches. I, I, you know what? No, I don't want to go back to the good old days. Guess what I want? I want everyone to have the freedom. And then guess what I want to have? To criticize your, your belief. And I guess what I want you to have the right to do? But I want you to have the freedom to worship. 
That's why when people after 9-11 wanted to stop the building of mosques, I was like, "How? what are you talking about? You can't stop the freedom of someone's religion. Then anytime Christians commit a crime, then guess what? Then you stop the building of churches. So, no, but right here, guess what's happening? He's being punished for what? Religious differences. I do not, oh, I cannot stand that kind of thing. I cannot stand it. And it's, it's too prevalent in American Christianity right now. There's this weird mixture, right? I mean, I played the clip of the other day happening in a conference with pastors where the, pers- the pastors are being told to do what? set aside their Bible and to read the Constitution in their sermons. Literally says, set aside the Bible. Okay, if you hear that, get out of your church. Run! That's why in our church, would we ever have an American flag in here? No, we will never have an American flag in here because this is a church. We do not represent a country. We do not represent a political party. We represent Christ. We are to uplift the cross, not a flag. Now you say that people lose their mind. Well, I love my country. Well, you love your country all you want. The church is not here to promote that. Anyone from any country or any culture should be able to walk into a church and not be given a pro-American message. They should be given a pro-God gospel scripture message. Here we have this kind of thing where, guess what? Nope, Jeremiah, your message is wrong. And so what happens to him? He gets, well, he gets smote, beaten, put in the stocks that were in the high gate of Benjamin, which was by the house of the Lord. And it came to pass on the morrow, the pastor brought forth Jeremiah out of the stocks, then said Jeremiah unto him, the Lord hath not called thy name pastor, but Magar Misabib, right? Okay. Now, what is a magar, magar, magor, a bit masabib? If I misabib, if I can read it correctly, what does that uh, mean? Does anyone know? Fear roundabout. Now, why do you think he calls him fear roundabout? Yeah, I, I think maybe it's like a prophetic name almost, right? Like, hey, you're, you're, you're coming after me. You probably should be worried about what's around you. Okay, meant freedom. All right, that's good. Yeah, pasture meant freedom. And then Magor Mesabib, right, means terror on every side. Yeah, you're not so free. You're not so free. You're not so free. But again, if you would have been hearing this, you would have been like, would you have been like, ooh, Jeremiah, who he just changed his name. Ooh, this me. Or would you have been like, Jeremiah's out of his mind. He's, he's, he's crazy. You would have just been so dismissive of Jeremiah. You know it and I know it. Now, does that not worry you though? Because that can indicate that many times the majority is very wrong in who's preaching the truth. They definitely were here. They were in Jesus' time. I mean, that's the eternal son of God. And they were like, crucify him. Okay, that, that, I think they kind of got the message wrong. Did they not? And once again, you had the religious leaders who got it wrong, yes? All right. 
For thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will make thee a terror to thyself and to all thy friends, and they shall fall by the sword of their enemies, and thine eyes shall behold it, and I will give all Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall carry them captive into Babylon, and shall slay them with the sword. Now the one thing you have to give Jeremiah credit for is what? He's not backing down. He doesn't back down, right? He's like, oh, hey, I think maybe we have a little misunderstanding here. You know, he's just like, I'm going to change your name, and then I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. And what does he say next? Moreover, I will deliver the strength of this city and all the laborers thereof and all the precious things thereof and all the treasures of the king of Judah will I give into the hands of their enemies, which shall spoil them and take them and carry them to Babylon. So, man, that, that all sounds really bad, does it not? But then he gets personal. And thou, Pasher, and all that dwell in thine house shall go into captivity and they shall come to Babylon. Thee, there thou shalt die and shall be buried there. Thou and all thy friends to whom thou hast prophesied lies. Now he accused him of, you are preaching the wrong message. I'm preaching the right message. Oh, now, now we got a full-blown theological war going on. We have a full-blown church split happening. Now, isn't it sad, though? Here's what, imagine. Here's Jeremiah. Here's the man who's the overseer of the temple. And everyone else is just your average person, a farmer, a shepherd, you know, they're, you know housewife, they're just your normal people. Do they have the theological education? Do they, they don't even own what? A Bible. Now, if you're sitting there watching this, does this help anybody? It's like watching two people battle on social media. Like, So were people walking around, were people outside selling a shirt? I'm team Jeremiah. I'm team Pasher, right? You know, who, who are you down with? Who are you down? I got my money on Pasher. I got my money on Jeremiah. Like, were they, were they doing that? I mean, I, now, I, obviously, they weren't doing it to that extent. But were, do you think there were people possibly trying to figure out who was right? Because those are radically different messages, are they not? Pasher seems to be telling everyone What? We're all good. Freedom. Freedom. We're safe. We're secure. And Jeremiah is telling them, Pasher is a liar. Okay? I mean, those are strong words, are they not? Then look at verse 10. Now, what happens here in verse 10? I want to finish this chapter, but these are where things always kind of go. What happened? All right. So, uh, oh, verse 7. I'm sorry, verse 7. Yeah, verse 7. Okay. Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, verse 7. Thank you for correcting my reading of the wrong number. Okay. All right. What does it say? O oh Lord, thou hast deceived me, and I was deceived. Thou art stronger than I, and thou and hast prevailed. I am in derision daily. Everyone mocketh me. All of a sudden, in verse 7, what happens? Jeremiah starts speaking. Now, this is hilarious, and I love this. I love this from a minister standpoint, right? In front of, while pastor is there, what does he say? Judgment's coming. You're a liar. He sounds strong. He sounds convicted. Now, I don't know when this happens. Does it tell us when he starts mentioning these words? 
it seems after Pasher obviously has left, right? Maybe he's alone there in the, he's, where is he still at? Well, where was he put? In the stocks, right? Oh, he took him out the next morning. So, so maybe he was set free? Good, good point. Thanks for pointing that out. So what do you think? Do you think he's set free at this point? Wherever he is, wherever he is, what can we say? He most likely is what? Alone. And now when he's alone, what does he say? Lord, you deceived me. I was deceived. Thou art stronger than I and has prevailed. I am in derision daily. Everyone mocketh me. Why do you think he's, the, he's, he's making a claim that he was deceived? Listen to how this commentary reads. You ready? So bold, so offensive, and so verging on blasphemy are these words that some have tried to soften them by translating them as enticed or persuaded. Jeremiah did not accuse God, did not accuse God of lying, but the Hebrew verb means to seduce as a virgin is seduced. He thought God had twisted his arm in calling him to, to the prophetic ministry. Jeremiah's audience made him a laughingstock. So everyone tries to say, whoa, Jeremiah's on the verge of blasphemy. I don't think we should water it down. Why, do I, why, why would I argue we should not water it down? Because, because what, whenever, we always try to do this, right? Christians love to do this. When it comes to David's sin, what do many pastors do? We see it was her fault. She knew. She knew when David was coming out. She knew. Because we don't want to make David feel so bad. When it comes to Solomon and being, you know, the greatest adulterer in the history of humankind, right? We say, we just kind of do what? We just kind of overlook it. It's okay. So when I read the Song of Solomon, nobody, nobody gets bothered. They're like, well, that's kind of a messed up book considering which woman is he talking to? He only had a thousand, right? And if you mention this stuff, people get mad at you. But you, you shouldn't get, don't get upset about it. I love the fact that Solomon is a no good person. I'm, I'm excited that David is because it means that, hey, all of us should realize we're in good company because you're, we're no better, right? Well, what does it demonstrate? That all of those people in the Bible are messed up. And, when, and so what do we do when David's like, I'm, or when Paul's like, I'm the chief of sinners. We're like, well, it probably was nothing big. Right? We minimize it, right? Well, it probably was nothing scandalous, right? When he says, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, I do. We're, we, never, we never try to speculate what those things could be. It's always something small. Well, he probably was, you know, grouchy one day or probably didn't shake someone's hand in church. We, want, we can't even think it could be a scandalous sin, can we? I don't like to water it down because, I, because you know what it demonstrates to me? Jeremiah is a sinful human being. 
But we can't have a sinful human being preaching the message. It goes against our way of thinking. He can't be a sinful man. He's got to be perfect. He's got to be, he's a sinful man. Everyone in the Bible, they found grace in God's eyes, not because of anything within them, but because of God's sovereign grace bestowed upon them. Noah found grace and he ended up nude and drunk and something bad happens in that tent. Abraham, I don't care how you want to write that story. What happens with Hagar is beyond messed up. And I agree that many, that's it's just full-blown something bad happened there. So I, I don't want to water this down. Now, if you want to water it down, by all means. But even if you're like, well, well, you know, it, it's not that God lied to him. It's just God seduced him as someone would seduce a virgin. Does that make the story any better? Now, why do you think he feels deceived? Why do you think he feels seduced? Because he thought probably, well, wait a minute, God. What's the issue here? All right, now we got to finish. We've got to go move quick. Here we go, verse 8. For since I spake, I cried out, I cried violence and spoil, because the word of the Lord was made a reproach unto me and a derision daily. Then I said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name, but his word was in my heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I was weary with forbearing, and I could not stay. Now, in some ways, he's almost blaming God for that, right? Now, a lot of people use this as, as this is the true proof of, men, of call to ministry. This is the true proof, right? Is that all the other things people say is that because a lot of people say the call to ministry is some kind of weird, like you got to, do I feel it? Do I, am I called? Am I not called? That, but when you, when you can't shut up, right? Because if you're in ministry, about every other Monday, you want to quit. And you're like, God, you lied to me. This job stinks, Right? This is the worst job in the history of humankind, right? But if you really called, what happens come Thursday? You, even though you, you may be irritated, you're like, wow, man, I was reading this. And you're like, oh, man, I want to talk about that. You can't stop yourself, right? So I think that, that now he's blaming uh, God for that, whether it's God or not. The point is, that to me, if you don't have that, you won't be in ministry long because you're going to want, you're going to be pretty much about every other Monday. You're going to be like, Lord, you deceive me. Lord, you're stronger than I and I'm in derision daily and everyone mocketh me. <laughs> okay. You're, you're going to be basically saying, what, what am I doing? Then verse 10, for I heard the defaming of many, uh, for many fear on every side report, say they, and we will report it. All my families, all my familiars, watched for my halting, saying, pre-adventure he will be enticed and we shall prevail against him and we should take our revenge on him. Verse 11, but, Lord, but the Lord is with me as a mighty terrible one. Therefore my persecutors shall stumble and they shall not prevail. They shall be greatly ashamed for they shall not prosper. Their everlasting confusion shall never be forgotten. Now, once again, sometimes Jeremiah seems schizophrenic, but it's really the reality of a Christian, Right? And at the reality, the reality of a Christian, we live with two, we live in the midst of two contradictions, right? Look, if you don't know anything about the Christian life, you need to get that down. You li- the Christian life is lived between two contradictions. 
The contradictions is the world in which we live, the reality, right? We're sinners. We have a sinful nature. We can't do anything wrong. We have all pain, suffering, death, children dying of horrible diseases, people burned to death in Maui, horrible destruction, and just school shootings, rape, murder, children being molested inside the church. And else. That is a horrible reality. The other reality is there's an all-powerful God who supposedly loves the world, who is sovereign, who is all-knowing, Living in between those two realities is maddening at times. Because an all-powerful God, you think he could have stopped the fire from killing now up to almost 100 people. You think he could possibly stop, I don't know, children being molested inside the church? Christians don't like to live between those two realities. So we do what? We either play down the one, and we're always conflicted. If you don't feel that confliction, if you don't feel that, that struggle, Jeremiah at, at times sounds like, well, what? he just said one thing, and the next thing he makes it sound like what? God's got it all fixed. Verse 12, but O Lord of hosts, thou triest the righteous and seest the reins of the heart. Let me see thy vengeance on them, for unto thee have I opened my cause. Sing unto the Lord, praise ye the Lord, for he hath delivered the soul of the poor from the hand of evildoers. And you're like, Jeremiah, what are you talking about, right? Like sometimes we have theological truths that absolutely seem to contradict physical realities. A God who's omnipresent, all-knowing, all-powerful, who can do anything, and then the realities I just articulated. If you can make sense of that, either you are crazy or you're, being, you're, not, you're not looking at the reality of it. Because I look at the realities of the world and I am baffled and confused. I don't know if anyone's seen the video of Maui and what it currently looks like. Whole islands burned to the ground. Churches in, included. Almost 100 people dead. And there's a debate that the warning sirens did not even go off. Well, God could at least cause the warning sirens to go off to protect somebody. And then verse 14. Cursed be the day wherein I was born. Let not the day wherein my mother bear me be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought tidings to my father, saying, A man child is born unto thee. Make him very glad. Right? Now, what is he saying in verse uh, 14 and 15? Do I? He sh- shouldn't have been. Now he's going back to, I wish I was never born, right? You know, he, he just goes back, praise ye the Lord. Curse be, the, curse my, be my parents, right? right? Then verse 16. And let the man be as the cities which the Lord overthrew and repented not. Let him hear the cry in the morning and the shouting at noontide. Because he slew me not from the womb or that my mother might have been my grave and her womb be all, uh, and to be always great with me. Wherefore came I forth out of the womb to see labor and sorrow that my day should be consumed with shame. He's questioning why he was ever born. Isn't that insane? The, the roller coaster of emotions. God, you deceived me. Hey, praise ye the Lord. God, you are righteous. I wish I was never born. Okay. Isn't that crazy in just those few sections? I'm telling you, you should read those sections 
as much as possible. I know I had to read that last part really, really fast because now we're out of time. All right, but I want you to just see that. He's almost asking a question in 18, is he not? Wherefore came I forth out of the womb to see labor and sorrow that my day should be consumed with shame? Why was I even born if I'm going to spend my whole life experiencing what? Shame. What persecution? What's even the point? Now, don't water it down. Don't water it down. One, don't ever let a Christian tell another Christian, oh, you can't say things like that. You can't. If you ever hear a Christian telling another Christian they can't say things like that, take a Bible and hit them over the head with it because that's just wrong. If Jeremiah, Jeremiah can express it. Who else expressed it? Job expressed it. David and the, David and the Psalms expressed it, right? We, godly people can express, I'm sick of it. I'm done. I'm tired of it. I wish I was never alive. I wish I was dead. And people say, Christians can't talk that way. Just, you need to stop talking if you say those things. Because that's me, because your, your choices are what? Pretend, play like everything's good, or be open and honest with the reality that, you, that sometimes, you know what doesn't make sense? Theology compared to reality. Do the two ever make sense? Never. If you ever think they make sense, you are out of your ever-living mind. An all-knowing, all-powerful, eternal God who's omnipresent, and then you just go, just take the news on any given day, and you tell me if that makes any sense. When we we studied the doctrine of hell in a roundabout, messed up, kind of tangible way, trying to figure it all out, there's a lot we don't know, but even that doctrine itself is hard to wrap your mind around. God, before he created the world, knew that there would be a hell and people would go to it. Unless you're going to destroy God being all-knowing. If you destroy God being all-knowing, then, well, then he's not God, and then, well, then there's no point. How, how can you reconcile that? Oh, God loves, but people burn forever. That, there's no way to reconcile that, ever. They say, well, even if you go with the argument, well, well God, God gives them the freedom. He gave them the freedom knowing where they're going to go. If Bobby brought one of Twyla's kids up here and go, hey, I'm going to give you freedom, go play in the, in the, uh, in the uh, you know, highway, knowing they're going to get hit by a truck, I think you would probably call what on Bobby? The authority going, no, no, Bobby, don't give them the freedom to go play in the highway because they're going to get hurt. Well, God giving us freedom knowing it's going to lead the majority to hell seems like a pretty messed up idea. So, wait, God is all loving, but that... It's conflicting, is it not? We have to live with that conflict. We have to live in the middle of it. And Jeremiah clearly shows that conflict, does it not? One minute, Jeremiah is doing what? Complaining, then praying. Then questioning, and then wishing he was never born. All within about how quick? About five verses. That's insane. Some people would say he, would, he has a mental illness. No, I think he's just real. Some people say, well, theology soothes the conscience. No, 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 
Theology destroys the mind, okay? Theology does not make anything easier. Theology doesn't bring comfort. Theology just brings more questions. There's, you say, well, where, where's the comfort? The only comfort I can find is that I know ultimately God does what he wants to do, but even with that, I'm not always happy because that involves what? A whole lot of people burning. That's not very easy to, to take either. Don't, don't allow a Christianity that waters this all down to make it nice and comfortable and easy and soothing because that denies the reality in which our life is lived. A, tr- a faith that cannot see that reality and deal with this conflict is a faith that is too weak to deal with it. That's why the church waters it all down and creates this weird Christian answers that are not really answers because it denies the reality. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this evening. We thank you for this very powerful example of a person dealing with realities that sometimes are too great for us to comprehend. And over and over, when we look at the truth of who you are and what you can do, Versus the reality of the world in which we live. We are sometimes confused and at times depressed, discouraged, outraged, and sometimes question even our own existence. All we can say is forgive us when we don't understand, but have mercy on us because of our weakness and because of our inability to truly understand an eternal, all-knowing God. And we ask you to forgive us, and we thank you that ultimately our salvation is not based on our understanding, but it is based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name is pray. We, we pray. And God's people said...